Well, welcome to everyone joining us. So glad uh, to see you today, especially if you're joining us online. We want to say welcome. It's good to have you with us. And also, if you're joining us online, I want you to know we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper at the end of this service. So you'll want to take some time to get the bread and the cup ready so you can share in that with us. Well, we are in week five of our series, Jesus Loves Me, learning some essential Christian beliefs uh, using that very familiar kid's song, Jesus Loves Me, This I Know, For the Bible Tells Me So. And we're using that as a way to help us understand and remember and then be able to share these truths with others who don't know them. And we have been learning during these weeks that accessing the power of God through Jesus is not complicated, but it is precise. Truth matters. We've learned that it's essential for us to believe uh, in who Jesus is, that Jesus is the one true God, fully God, fully human. And when you surrender your life to that reality, then you plug into the power source of the universe. It's not complicated, but it's precise. We've also seen that it's essential to believe that Jesus loved us and that he loved us so much that he died on the cross for our sins and that he did that even when we were his enemies. And it's not complicated, but it is precise. Last week, we saw how important it is for us to see both the glory and the ruin of humans. To understand Jesus loves me and what that means, we need to see that we are God's creation, that we are made in the image of God, but we've been ruined by sin. The Bible says we're spiritually dead, that we're desperately in need of restoration. We've seen in this that the gospel is good news precisely because the gospel tells us that the God of the universe loves us and he, he wants to restore us all that is broken in us, all that is broken in our world. And that's good news. And we've seen that we can receive that, that good news by faith, that we can't earn it. It's God's gift that we receive when we repent, when we believe in Jesus Christ as God's son, fully God, fully human, the God-man who died for our sins. But here's our question today. What if you get all of that? Jesus loves me, even me. And what if you receive this good news of the gospel? But then sometimes, sometimes you find yourself wondering do I really know God? Am I truly his child? Am I really saved? And that's what today is about. This I know. Can we know that we have received God's love through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross? Is that possible? And if we can know, then how can we know? Theologians call this the, the doctrine of the assurance of salvation. And, and this is an area of real struggle for many people, maybe some of you here today. And, and there are many Christians, people who name the name of Christ, who've been told that they need to pray a prayer. It's often called the, the sinner's prayer. And then they've prayed it, but then they find themselves wondering, did I get it right? Was I sorry enough for my sin? Did I, you know, repent enough? Did I understand grace enough? And some of you know this. You have prayed that prayer again and again and again just to make sure you're getting it right. Just to make sure 
that God sees you're sorry enough or your uh, emotions are, are into this enough. Maybe sometimes in your life you struggle with sin or doubt and you find yourself wondering, you know, I've been doing this and it's happened again and again and again. What if this is the time that God finally says, I've had enough of you, <laughs> I'm just done. Living in assurance of God's love and God's grace really is a struggle for many people. But there's also another issue, another group of people that the Bible addresses around this. And, and, and the Bible tells us there is this issue of what we might call false assurance. Because there are also at the same time many people who feel confident that they are saved. Maybe they prayed to receive Jesus Christ. Maybe they've been active in serving in a church and maybe they've attended a church for, for years. But the reality is they are tragically mistaken. There was a Barna study done a few years ago and it showed that 50% of Americans say that they have prayed some form of the sinner's prayer. Even though half of that number never go to any kind of church or even more people have lifestyles and worldviews that are virtually the same as people who are outside of the Christian faith. But here's the thing, oftentimes when people like this hear the gospel, what they will find themselves thinking is, been there, done that, prayed the prayer, filled out the card, I'm good. In Matthew chapter seven, verses 21 to 23, almost at the end of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, on the day of judgment, there are gonna be people who will come to him and who will say to him, Lord, Lord, only to have Jesus turn them away with those awful words, depart from me, I never knew you. This passage, and there are others, they, they warn us that there are people also who've prayed a prayer and who say they know Christ, but reality is they are headed into an eternity confident of a salvation that they do not possess. You know, as your pastor, to be honest with you, I, I, I live with the reality every day, especially on Sundays, wondering if some of us are in this group because if you read what Jesus says there, he's describing church people. He's describing people like us. The people that Jesus sends into judgment, these are people who are outwardly looking like they are serving God faithfully. Sometimes people will base their confidence on the fact that they are moral. Uh, maybe on the fact that they feel guilty about their sin, but reality is there are lots of people outside the church who live pretty moral, pretty decent lives. You probably know some of them. And there are lots of people outside the church not Christians at all, who feel guilty about their sin. I mean, this is one of the main pillars of the whole psychological, therapeutical industry. It's built on dealing with guilt. Lots of people feel guilty. In the Bible, Judas, he felt so guilty, he went out and hung himself. So feeling bad about your sin doesn't prove you're saved. And the reality is, it's possible to be deceived. It's possible to live with a false assurance. See, here's the thing, as, as your pastor, I don't want you to live with false assurance that leads to an eternity without Christ, and I don't want you to live without assurance, worried that you're not right with God when you actually are. So here's what I'm praying is gonna happen today. Uh, I'm praying that I can help 
all of us understand what it means to be truly saved and then some of what that would look like in our lives. And what I hope is gonna happen today is that for some of you, some of you who are unnecessarily troubled that you will be comforted. And then for some of you who are unnecessarily, unjustifiably comforted that you will be troubled. See, for those of us who were raised in churches kind of like this, when we were taught you know, that you're supposed to always pray a prayer, that's how you come to Christ. But I wanna explain something to you. The Bible is really clear. We're not saved because we pray a certain prayer, a magical prayer. God saves us when we repent and believe the gospel. That's when we're saved. Now, it's true, you can express repentance and faith in a prayer, but it's not the prayer itself that saves. It is the repentance and faith behind the prayer that is actually laying hold of salvation. So it's possible to repent and believe without praying the prayer. It's also possible to pray the prayer without repenting and believing. Does that make sense? You know, there's actually a book, an entire book in the New Testament that the whole point of the book is to show you how you can gain assurance that God loves you, that God's real, that, it, that it's possible to know that he loves you and that you're walking in his love. And that, that book is the letter of 1 John. And so if you wanna turn there, we're gonna be looking at some verses in 1 John. Our key verse is actually the key verse of the entire letter of 1 John. And interestingly enough, John puts that verse almost at the very end of his letter. It's 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. And in this, this verse, John summarizes the whole book. And so we're gonna look at this verse. We're also gonna go to other places through 1 John. And we're gonna be asking two questions today about assurance of salvation. The first one is really basic, and you can write this down if you're taking notes in your app. Does God want us to know we're saved? Does God want us to know we're saved? And the reason we ask this question is some people would say no. Some people would see that God doesn't want us to know that we're saved as kind of a way that God keeps us in line. Maybe like dangling a carrot out in front of us. Like you better act right. You better do what I tell you or you're not gonna get into heaven. You're gonna go to hell forever. It's kind of like what may happen when you guarantee someone that they cannot be fired from their job. I think we'd all agree that's probably not a good idea, right? They're gonna probably get lazy. They're probably gonna call in sick all the time. If you try to challenge them, they're gonna say, what are you gonna do, fire me? You can't. That doesn't seem like a good idea. Or for you students who are here, imagine this. You show up at the first day of a new semester to a class you haven't ever been in before and the teacher says, I got something to share with you. In this class, everyone is guaranteed to get an A no matter what. Here's the question. Are you gonna study for the quizzes? Are you gonna read the textbook? Are you gonna get ready for the midterm or the finals? Answer is no. And see, some people think that if someone has the assurance of salvation, that they won't be motivated to live for God. So the question is, does God even want us to know? And the answer that John gives in 1 John 5, 13 is yes. Yes, he wants us to know. Here's what John says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may, what? Know that you have eternal life. That's why he wrote 
the letter. Now, I think there are at least two reason why, uh, reasons why God wants us to know, and the first is that God loves us. I mean, when you love someone, you want them to know that you love them, that you are uh, having that love for them. You just want them to know. Secondly, the only way we'll ever develop real love for God is when we are confident of his love for us. Real love only grows in the soil of security. And I think we all realize this. You know, when you, you make someone behave by threatening them, you might coerce their behavior, but you never captivate their heart. In the Gospel of John, um, uh, John shares some analogies that Jesus uses to teach his disciples how he felt about them. And he gives them these analogies, these pictures, like the night before he's gonna go to the cross. He's leaving them and he wants them to know as he, he's leaving them that they can be assured of his love. And in John 14, 18, we find the first analogy and Jesus says this. He says to his followers that we are his beloved children. So in this verse, he's speaking as a loving father. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And, and you get this. We all get this. A good father doesn't want his kids wondering whether or not he loves them, whether or not he's committed to them. You know, my, my kids are, are adults now, grown up, but when, when they were still at home, I would travel sometimes. And, and when I got ready to go, I would not say to my kids, hey, kids, daddy will be back soon. Or maybe he won't. Maybe I'm not really your daddy at all. Maybe my real family lives somewhere else. Maybe I'll come back, kids. Maybe I won't. You'll just have to wait and see. So you just think about that while I'm on my trip and see if you can be better kids when I get back. I wouldn't say that, right? And no good father would say that because that would never produce love. Now, it might produce a little fear-based obedience, but it is only a matter of time until fear-based obedience turns into father-loathing rebellion. And I just described some of your lives. See, here's the point. If I don't want if I don't want my kids feeling like orphans, why would God, who is the perfect father, not want his kids to live in the assurance of his love? Jesus gives a second analogy, also in John 14. This is actually in verse three. He says, we are his betrothed bride. He writes, or, or John writes what Jesus said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Now we read these verses as about heaven and they are, but Jesus was, was uh, tied into very familiar imagery of that day where a man who was betrothed to a woman would make a promise to her that he was gonna go away and get their home ready. He was gonna prepare the place where they would live and then he would come back and get the woman as his bride. Jesus was saying that, he was using that familiar image to assure his disciples of their love. This sort of thing kind of happens sometimes in some of our relationships when we're engaged. Uh, Dan and I, when we were engaged, we didn't live apart for the about half a year between our engagement and, and our wedding. But some of you have had that experience where for different reasons you had to be far apart. And I've known many couples like that. 
it always helps to have confidence in that other person's love while they're gone. It makes it more likely that they're eventually gonna end up married, right? Assurance gives strength. Assurance gives peace. Here's a gospel secret. If you ever get your mind around this, it will totally change your life. The gospel secret is that assurance in the gospel has a greater power to produce virtue and love in our hearts than the threats of the law ever could. See, the threats of the law can have coarse behavior that can never captivate the heart. 500 or so years ago, the established church in Martin Luther's day believed that people would never obey unless they were threatened with harsh consequences for rebellion. And Martin Luther, the reformer, he he was such a a colorful person. He just had a great way of capturing things. He called this the damnable doctrine of doubt. And he said this, he said, yes, being afraid of judgment will indeed produce a surface level adherence, but underneath that thin veneer of obedience, will rush a river of fear, pride, and self-interest. You know it's true. The only way to develop real love is to remove fear. The only way to develop real love for God is to renew fear. 1 John 4, 18 says this, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. As I said, love for God grows only in the soil of security. Look what verse verse 19 says, we love him. Why? Because we're commanded to? Because he threatens us with hell? No, We love him because he first loved us. You see, assurance of God's love for us is what produces love for God in us. You get it? This is what the Bible teaches. A few years ago, one of the most popular movies out, I'm sure many of you saw it, was Les Mis. How many of you saw uh, Les Mis when it came out? You remember that? Or maybe you went to see the, the, the Broadway play. And, and if you remember the story, it's about a man named Valjean. He is a hardened criminal, unjustly in prison um, for a lot of different things that have happened. And he's been there for 20 years and he's been resisting the threats of his captors. The things that are done to him in prison only harden the hatred in his heart. And he finally gets out of prison. And he's taken in by a priest, but he repays this priest's kindness by robbing him. And of course, he gets caught And they bring him back to the priest with what he's stolen. And the priest has the ability to send him back to prison for the rest of his life. And if you remember this story, you'll know that instead of giving him justice, the priest forgives Valjean and helps him an incredible act of grace. Now, some of you, maybe you've not only seen the movie or watched uh, uh, the, the musical, You've also read Victor Hugo's novel, classic novel, the original from which the story comes. And in the novel, there's a section where he begins to describe what's going on in Valjean's heart. And you just can't capture it in a movie or a musical. Victor Hugo says that for 20 years, Valjean had been able to resist the threats of the law. Let me read his words to you. He writes, Valjean dimly felt 
that this priest's pardon was the hardest assault of all, the most formidable attack he had ever sustained, that a gigantic and decisive struggle had begun in his heart between his own wrongs and the goodness of this man. And if you know the story, what you'll see if you think about it is that Victor Hugo is just representing the gospel. He's saying that the gospel is able to do what the law could never do. You can resist the law, but it is the goodness and the grace of God that changes the heart and makes the heart love righteousness and love God. That's what Romans 2, 4 says, the kindness of God leads us to repentance. See, this is why if you struggle with sin, the answer for you is not more law, not more rules, not more self-discipline. The answer is a radical experience with the love and assurance the gospel gives you. We see this reality powerfully portrayed in a familiar story in John's gospel. It's John 8. It's the story where Jesus encounters the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And if you remember that story, you'll remember the religious leaders had dragged her out into public and they, they, they did this to punish her. They did this to stone her. They had the ulterior motive of, of trying to trap Jesus. They've got stones in their hand. They're ready to kill her. And so they asked Jesus as they set their trap, Jesus, what should we do with this woman? And Jesus, you may remember, does something kind of strange. He kneels down and he starts scribbling in the dirt and then he says to them, those familiar words, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And they all look around, it's very awkward, and one by one they drop their rocks and they go home. Eventually it's just the woman and Jesus. And Jesus looks at her and Jesus says to her, where are they? Is there no one to condemn you? And she says, no one. And then he says to her this most profound statement. I want you to pay very close attention. He says, then neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now what is profound about these words that you're so familiar with is not just what he said, but the order in which he said it. And the reality is most of us, we would almost always reverse the order of those two phrases, right? We would say to someone, and some of us have said to someone, you go and sin no more, then I won't condemn you. But Jesus puts acceptance before change because Jesus knows she would never have had the power to change until she's assured of his acceptance. Jesus knows that the reason she had gone into the arms of adultery is that she was craving something in her soul. She was craving love. She was craving security. She had sought for that in the arms of adultery. And Jesus knew she'd never have the power to, to break that craving until she was assured of the love of a father who was better, a father who was more secure than the love she was seeking in the arms of some guy, which she'd been doing probably since the time she was in middle school. God's acceptance is the power that liberates you from sin, not the reward you get for having liberated yourself. 
And when you get this, it changes your life. Everything we do spiritually grows out of that. In fact, I will say to you, you're never really gonna go anywhere spiritually until you are assured that God loves you, that he is yours and you are his. So yes, yes, God wants you to be assured of his love for you. Second, how can we know we are saved? Now, John, in his letter, shows us four major ways, and I wanna lay these out for you. And I wanna start with the verse we already saw, 1 John 5, 13, let me read it again. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. And we see the first way we can know right here, you have placed your hopes for heaven entirely on Jesus. How do you know you're saved? Well, you know when you place your hopes entirely on Jesus. When John says you believe in the name, that phrase believe in the name means that you are resting in the account of that person. Maybe you could think about it like this. Let's say you were invited by a really, really wealthy person uh, to travel to an incredibly luxurious resort and stay in a five-star hotel that you could never, ever afford on your own and you would have this entire trip, all expenses paid. When you got to the hotel and checked in and they asked for your credit card, you would say to them, I'm here under the name of so-and-so because you would know that this is going to be charged to this person's account, not to you. When you believe in the name of the Son of God, the same kind of thing is happening. You are resting on his actions to save you. In other words, you don't, you don't attempt to earn heaven by drawing on your moral bank account. You go under Jesus' name, withdrawing on Jesus' account of infinite righteousness in your place. You see, the gospel, by its very nature, it produces assurance. Because if you get the gospel and you're living by the gospel, you are not depending on how well or how much you have done to earn your way to heaven. You're not depending on that at all. You are resting on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. You know, sometimes I'll be getting to know someone and I'll ask them, are you a Christian? And sometimes people say, well, I'm trying. I'm doing my best. And when people say that, I know that means they don't get it. Because someone who says that is showing me that they think there is a level they need to perform at to like, you know, qualify for the title of Christian. But the truth of the gospel is this, there's nothing that needs to be done. Jesus has finished the work of our salvation. We accept that and we rest in that, what he has done for us. We place our hopes for heaven entirely on him. You know, a good illustration of what we're talking about here is a chair, and you're all sitting in a chair right now, right? right? A, a chair um, is a good illustration of what it means to rest in salvation, and here's how it works. You can only be in one of two positions to that chair that you're sitting in, right? Either you're standing up beside the chair, you are bearing your own weight, or you have sat down and you are resting in that chair. And in the same way, you can only be in one of two positions in your relationship to Christ. You are standing in your own authority or you are seated in submission to him. You are standing and trusting in your own righteousness or you are seated and you are resting in the righteousness of Christ. 
what if I, what if I told that chair that I trusted that chair, but I never sat down? See, the point isn't what you have said. It's like we were talking a while ago. The point isn't about saying a prayer. The point is, are you sitting down? Some of you, as you wrestle with these issues that we're talking about, you will be asking the question, well, how do I, I know that I made that decision to trust Christ? How do I know? Well, let me ask you this. How do you know that you made the decision to sit down in your chair? How do you know? I mean, if you're sitting down, which you are, all of you made that decision coming in, but do you know you did that because you remember making that decision? I mean, do you remember consciously thinking, you know, I'm gonna use this chair. This chair looks sturdy. Looks like it has, I don't know, like a polycarbonate steel kind of a frame. It'll probably hold me up. I'm gonna sit down in that chair. I choose to sit down. Anybody do that? Of course not. If you say you did, you have other problems, right? <laughs> How do you know? You know because you are sitting down. How are you supposed to know that you made the decision to trust Christ? You know because you are seated in him now. You are resting in him now. You say, but I don't remember when I did it. Well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you remember the prayer or not. Maybe you remember the prayer, that's fine. But maybe you remember the prayer, but the reality is you're not seated. You prayed a prayer, but that's not how you're living. Who cares what you prayed? See, the point is not the prayer you prayed. The point is the posture that you are in. An assurance of salvation, knowing it comes not by remembering a prayer that you prayed in the past, but by the posture you are in, in the present. Assurance doesn't come from a past memory, but from a present posture. And so if you find yourself trying to remember back five years, 10 years, 30 years, 50 years, I don't know how long, trying to remember, looking for assurance in something that happened a long time ago, the Bible says don't do that. The Bible says trust in Christ now. Rest your hopes entirely in Christ now. That's where assurance comes from. Second way John gives us to know is this. You have a new nature we see this in 1 John 5, 18, where he says, we know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe and the evil one cannot harm them. So he's just reminding us, and this is inherent in that image of being born again. Uh, born again tells us new life that comes with a new nature, that new nature comes with new desires. And the result is we don't keep on sinning. And the reason for that is not because God threatens us, but because we have new desires. I'm gonna give you kind of an earthy way to think about it. This is especially for the teenage boys in the room. It's also for all of the men who are still junior hires at heart. You know who you are. And uh, I don't want any emails about this illustration if you don't like it. Um, just don't send them to me. I, I don't wanna read them. But imagine with me that down here in front, right here at the foot of the stage, down here, there is this big pile of vomit. Someone has thrown up. It's a big, warm, steaming pile of vomit. Now, here's the reality. Yeah, the junior high boys are going, cool. Um, here's the reality. There is not one of you here that needs me to command you 
you better not come down here and lick up this vomit. You don't need me to tell you that, right? You don't need me to say, I'm serious. We have a rule at Southwinds Church, no licking up other people's vomit. You don't need me to tell you that, right? I'm not gonna have to get a couple of our first responders to like stand around the pile of vomit to guard it so that someone doesn't sneak up and lick it up while no one's looking. Not gonna need to do that, right? No one needs to hear anything like that unless you're a dog. If you are a dog, then we do need to make rules for you because you're like, nice, warm vomit. Half-digested hot dog, bonus. You know, you're gonna be down there licking it up because that's your nature. You see, God does not change us by threatening us with the consequences of sin. He changes us by giving us new hearts and new natures that come with new desires, which means that one of the signs that God is in your life is that the old things that you used to love, things like selfishness or pride, things like racism or dishonesty, those things don't just become wrong to you. They become distasteful and even disgusting to you. And while you may still struggle with some of them because some of that old nature is in you, you now have whole new desires for different things. And when you do find yourself sometimes starting to go back towards those things, which we all do, well, John says in chapter five, verse 18, that Jesus protects and renews you. There's kind of a play on words here. It says, it says, if you've been born of God, then the one who was born of God, virgin born of God, that's Jesus, he protects you. And it just reminds us all of the time kind of backslide. But the sign of someone who's truly saved, who truly knows God is that they always come back. See, one of the signs, one of the signs of the reality of God in your life is yes, you may Walk away sometimes and not be in fellowship with God, but you never do that permanently. God will bring you back. He always brings you back. Third way that you can know, and this grows straight out of the second way, you are growing in obedience to Jesus. Now, here's the reality. The more you obey Jesus, the more you sense assurance And again, this doesn't mean we don't sin. Of course we do. First John actually says everyone sins. And if you say you don't sin, you're a liar if you think you don't. But when we have a new nature, God is changing our hearts and making us uh, increasingly more like him. We grow in obedience. And so we fail, we fall, we get back up. We confess our sins, we repent, we obey again. This comes from 1 John 2, verses three and four. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. How do you have assurance? You obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Now, again, he's not talking about someone who sins sometimes. He's talking about someone here who willfully engages in sin, persistently engages in sin, defiantly continues in sin. If you do that and you say you're a follower of Christ, you're a liar. John also says it earlier, 1 John chapter 1, verses six and seven, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live in, out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. You know, it's important for us to take stock of our lives and maybe some of us really need to do this right now 
What John's talking about is this. If, if you fill up your week with the things that put Jesus on the cross, then you should be reminded that walking in here and checking in with God and singing some God songs and enduring a sermon uh, does not deceive God into thinking that your heart is right with him and belongs to him. The simple fact is this, you cannot love God and love the things that grieve God. You can't love God and be neutral towards the things that God hates. You cannot have a mouth that sings praise to Jesus on Sunday with a life that openly crucifies him the rest of the week. See, what did you do with your friends last night? What did you do at the office this week? How did you live in your home? Those things that you did and said show that you love God. What's hidden? in the closet of your life? What are you staring at on the internet? What are you filling your mind with? Do those things show that you love God? Are you growing in obedience? The more you obey God, the more assurance you'll have. I wanna point out something, just one thing here that was mentioned earlier. We have baptism coming up and and this is an area of obedience. In fact, it's the very first step of obedience that we are given as followers of Christ. If you come to know Christ, what's the first thing you do? You get baptized and sometimes people don't do that. Maybe sometimes, maybe some of you, you're struggling with assurance and maybe part of the answer is you need to obey Jesus by being baptized by following through on what he's, he's told you to do in your life. Here, John is telling us here that everyone who has been born of God, they don't keep on sinning because they have this new nature. They're, they're growing in obedience, and when we fall, God brings us back. One of my favorite verses in Proverbs is Proverbs 24, 16, and it speaks to this. I, I love how it says it. For though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Now, I want you to imagine like you're walking in the mall and there's someone ahead of you. A guy uh, is walking in front of you and he falls down. What do you do? Well, if you're like most of us, you point and laugh, you know, uh, because that's what we do when people fall. But if he falls a second time and then it looks like he's about to fall a third time, you, you get your phone out, right? Because you know, you're, you're gonna film this. You wanna send it to your friends. If he falls a fourth time and a fifth time, you're gonna put that on YouTube and it's gonna go viral. If he falls a sixth time and he falls a seventh time, then you're gonna feel bad that you put this on YouTube and you made fun of, his, uh, of him to your friends, right? Because obviously he has a problem. Now think about that in light of this verse. This is a righteous person. This falling seven times, seven is a symbol of completion. What it's really telling us is that righteous people fall so much that sometimes it seems like they can barely walk, but what's the difference? The difference is each time they fall, they get back up. They, they get back up and they get back up by looking at Jesus. You see, the reality of your walk with Christ, the reality that you know him is not demonstrated by never falling, it's demonstrated by what you do when you fall. I heard someone say that conversion is not sinless perfection, but a new direction. And if you you go right on sinning, you just keep sinning without ever being brought to your knees, then you, you have serious reason to doubt whether God is really in you. Let me give you one more thing very quickly. The fourth thing is you're growing in love 
for your brothers and sisters. Your, your assurance um, will grow in your life relative to your love for other brothers and sisters in Christ. This means that a sign that you have true faith, which leads to assurance, if I could put it this way, a sign of assurance is that you love the church. You love God's people. You love God's family. 1 John 2, 9 and 10 says, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. Now I wanna highlight this because I think sometimes people read this and say, well, I don't really hate anybody so I must be loving them. No, love's active. It's just, it's not just not hating it's more than that. It's, it's growing in relationship with someone. It's spending time with them. And I think sometimes it's so easy in our culture today uh, just to see all the failings in the church. Every time someone prominent in the church stumbles and fails, it gets blasted everywhere. We see it all the time. It's easy to look down on the church, even for people in the church. And we forget that God calls us to love the church, that the people in the church are imperfect just like us. They are our brothers and our sisters in Christ. Kind of a side note, maybe today's message will help us understand why so-called Christians so often don't look like Jesus. Maybe in some cases, so-called Christians are acting like they do because they're not really Christians at all. But the truth is, as I've just said, true Christians do stumble and fall. The truth is we should love them anyway, just like we want them to love us. And this means in part that we should long to be with God's people. If you love someone, you want to be with them. And see, this is one of the new desires of our new nature right here. Here's another verse in 1 John chapter 3, verse 14 says, we know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Anyone who does not love remains in death. And I think if you stop to contemplate this, you'll realize one of the great things about this is this. Assurance grows as we live in fellowship with other believers. Have you ever noticed this, that sometimes when you're struggling with doubt in your life, sometimes when your faith seems to be growing weak, that if you get with other brothers and sisters, if you spend time with people, they encourage you. Maybe you encourage them. But as you spend time with them, this happens on Sundays, that you are encouraged and you are strengthened and your doubts diminish. Have you ever noticed that happening? If you're with me, say amen. You, you know it does. And, and I will just say some of us maybe have never thought about this, but the reason some of you struggle with assurance sometimes is that you're too isolated. You're trying to live the Christian life on your own. You don't have enough fellowship with other brothers and sisters to encourage you. So practically what this means is every Sunday that you can get here. You know, don't stay home unless you have a really good reason. Join a life group, get in a support group, get connected somehow, some way with some people. It's important, it will help you, your assurance will grow. So, here's the question, do you know? Do you have assurance? The song says, this I know. And as we've seen, God wants us to know, God wants us to have assurance, we can know. We can know. 
Not the false assurance that comes from depending on our own righteousness, but the true assurance that comes from repentance and faith and resting in the finished work of Christ. I wanna leave you with a a definition of assurance, and this is something that you can talk more about uh, this week in your life groups. Here's the definition I wanna give you. Assurance of salvation is a God-given confidence for every true Christ follower of their present approval and their future acceptance by their Father. Do you have that kind of confidence right now and going out into the future on into eternity? God wants you to have it, and the gospel can give it to you. This is God's word for us today. Would you bow your heads as we pray?